Welcome to Cardboard Conjecture. We're a podcast about board games where we have opinions and conclusions formed on the basis of incomplete information. This episode of Cardboard Conjecture is brought to you by these great Saskatoon businesses. Amazing Stories Comics on 8th Street, Dragon's Den Games on 8th Street, and Breakout Escape Rooms on Faithful Avenue. Hey there, how's it going, eh? It's Wednesday, which means it's What You've Been Playing Wednesday. And this is a special weekly episode where a bunch of us content creators come together and talk about the games we've been playing recently. And on this episode are... Dice and Dragons, Board on the Air, The Meeple Dungeon, The Tabletop Bellhop, Meeple and the Moose, the Bridge City Board Gamers Community, and Cardboard Conjecture. And as always mentioned, sit back, relax, stand up, walk around, doesn't matter. Enjoy. What up, gamers? I'm Jason. I'm Julie, and together we're Dyson Dragons, and you can find us on Facebook, YouTube, Instagram at Dyson Dragons, and on Twitter at Dyson Dragon. And what is it today, Julie? It's What You've Been Playing Wednesdays. And what have we been playing? I have no idea. I can't remember. We've played a couple different games. How can you not remember? There's characters that you love from your childhood. Yes, we played... I can never remember the names of the games. You know that. It's Disney Sorcerer's something. Sorcerer's Arena Epic Alliances. This is the core set of the game, and we were playing the skirmish mode 1v1. This is actually our first ever skirmish game, at least that we've played uh, against each other. Now, the game can also be played 2v2 in a team battle format. Uh, the story of the game goes is that you're a summoner, you're summoning different Disney and Pixar characters, and then you're pitting them in the arena to do battle, and you're trying to get the most victory points by knocking out other players or controlling specific spaces on the board that will earn you victory points. The first to get the 20 victory points uh, is the one that will then trigger the end game. At the end of that round, the player with the most victory points will be declared the winner. But... Don't forget, you might be the first to 20, but on that last round of the game, someone could catch up and overtake you, so it's not over till it's over. Well, I haven't seen any cards yet that uh, would allow you really to overtake uh, like that. I mean, in some other games that we've seen, uh, we were able to, to have some really big moves, but I mean, I haven't really seen that in this game yet. Well, it'd be part of the strategy. You'd have to have every, the other players, uh, sorry, the players on the team or the individual that triggered the end game, if they're low health, then it could go badly for them because if the other team is in position to start knocking them down, they could catch up. So you have to take that into account. But then they might just be running away the whole time. Get away from us. Don't damage us. We want to win. <laughs> yeah. Um, so, I mean, this was my first skirmish game. Uh, I don't think my mind, my game mind, works ideally to the skirmish mode um i i mean as to those who have listened to us before i have never played video games i uh i don't work that way and i think it's the kind of um tactic or strategy thinking that that is maybe a little bit more prevalent in some types of video games i don't have that experience jason does and uh i could see when we're playing this that um 
my strategies weren't necessarily ideal to the skirmish mode. So all I'm going to say is I played it. I I had some fun. I really enjoyed the the look of the table presence of the game. I love the acrylic standees, you know, with the uh, uh, with the different characters. Um, but I think we need to talk about the fact that the villains are much cooler to play than the heroes, which is disappointing for me who likes to play the heroes, the good guys. I I don't love playing the bad guys. And on that note, one thing I would say about that is it does feel like some of the heroes, besides Aria, who you seem to have a really good grasp of and seems to play a lot more straightforward, do have a, a few more complicated elements to them, such as Sorcerer, Apprentice, Mickey's, Brooms that you need to use to really get him dealing damage, and Aladdin being more of a character that's going to be moving around the map, potentially causing players to discard cards, uh, becoming stealthy, and forcing the banished cards to deal him damage, which is an interesting style of play, but not something that you're necessarily going to pick up as, you know, in your first couple of plays. So there, there's some depth to the heroes, but... As Julie says, they don't seem to be as cool. I mean, Maleficent turns into a dragon. She can be at one health and then all of a sudden basically whack another character in the face and go back up to full health and you're just kind of sitting there laughing. Her dragon form even has range three. It just seems incredibly powerful compared to some of the other stuff that we've seen uh, from the heroes. Well, and Gaston was fun to play. Uh, and so was uh, Dr. Facilier, I think it was called. Yeah, you were getting really good at using uh, his control elements to really get stuff to work uh, in your favor on that uh, last play of the game that we had. He, he's, he's a spoil sport. He doesn't really get victory points, but he keeps other players from getting victory points. Yes, he did that very well. And even extended the game beyond a point where you're like, I'm just going to lose. And then next thing you know, you're catching back up. So even though you say your brain doesn't quite work for skirmish at the head and building teams, I do think it's something that uh, you could easily improve as we play this game more and as we get some more content too i do agree with you that the game feels a little bit lacking now there is the first expansion that is already available but in terms of what it's lacking i think you'll get enough content to start the game at a good price point in this box to get going but you're going to want to be picking up more heroes uh if you're like us and you're like trying different characters you'll exhaust this game fairly quickly uh, so the age range for this was uh, 13 and above, um, and it's not for any content, uh, uh, no violence or imagery or whatever. I think it's really more from the strategy perspective. You could probably play it with younger players, but they just might not grasp the whole element of, of the game. Maybe if you're playing in a team of 2v2, you could probably play with some younger players and help them uh, help them along a little bit. But uh it's not that it's the most comp it's not very complex it's just it takes strategies the cards are very straightforward to play no absolutely and younger players could definitely play this in a little bit more straightforward fashion where they probably just run at each other and beat each other up missing some of the strategies so it is playable for all player counts this is very much a family-friendly skirmish game and we enjoyed it for for what it was but uh, we want to see some some more of it before i can say that this is going to be a classic or something that we play on the regular Sounds good. So on that note, you can check out our review coming out the day after this, and or is it the week after? The day after. And uh, actually, no, it will be the week after this one. No, the day after. The week after is going to be the next one. <laughs> okay, then. So on that note, we're going to remind everybody to keep, keep playing, playing games. games. Yeah.
Hi, I'm David. And I'm Jordan. And this is Born in the Air, a weekly radio show in Saskatoon. And you are listening to What Have You Been Playing? This week we are talking about a bit of an older game. Uh, very much lesser known game as far as I know. It's called The Great Dinosaur Rush. Yeah, it's one to f- two to five players. It's you have a screen in front of you. You are collecting little like road pieces in Catan. That's you're, basically the that's what they look like. They're the road pieces from Catan. They're bones. They're bones. Get with the theme here, Jordan. I know. I'm just describing <laughs> what they look like. Okay. But yeah, so you're go- out on the board. You're running around collecting these bones, and every three rounds. You're going to be building a dinosaur, trying to do cards in front of you and other missions, like have the longest spine or whatever. Yeah. Uh, on on your turn, you're going to collect however many dinos- or however many bones are on the spot you're on. And then you're going to do... You're going to move up the scoring track or down the scoring track. And then you have two no. other actions. Or no. one other action. You move... You can move up and down one of the five scoring tracks. Then you do one more action. One more action. And those actions can be either steal a bone from next to you, uh, take three bones from the bag. But remove all bones on your area where you just moved. Yeah, it's basically collecting them early. Uh, Or you can move the tracks again. You can drop a trap for somebody else. Like you Does put, a trap? You grab a notoriety token, put it on the board, and next time someone moves through that or stops on it, they pick it up. Oh, we never ever did that. I did it once, and then I went on it myself. Okay. <laughs> but I wasn't as scared of it because my character, everyone has their own archaeologist with their own ability, and mine let me negate that one that I picked up. Yeah, the, you start with a, an archaeologist, which gives you some asymmetric powers. Uh, end of the game, whoever has the most points wins. And it's all about moving those tracks up and building your dinosaur to optimize one to of the tracks. optimize those tracks that you've moved. Uh, you also have some cards, plan or plans, I guess. Yeah. Or types of dinosaurs you're trying to build. Yeah. And if you do those, those give you bonus points again at the end of each every third turn. Yep. Uh, as you said, you played three turn or three rounds, and then. Uh, there is no final scoring. No, the only real final scoring is the notoriety tokens, which you get by doing notoriety actions, which are the stealing, using dynamite to get three new bones, but losing the bones on the area, or dropping the traps, which what those are is they're numbers one through three, and at the end of the game, whoever has the highest total of notoriety loses that many points. However, everyone else gains points for them. Yeah. Yeah, it's a cute game. Uh, this is, I think, the second time I've played it. We played it a, a few years back, and we just picked it up on sale at one of the FLGSs. <laughs> and for those of you who don't know, it's local game store. <laughs> the friendly local game store. Uh, you can get into some ridiculous things with it. Yeah, <laughs> This time when we played, most of our dinosaurs looked dinosaur-like. Yes. Uh, Mine ended up with, like, a scorpion tail, but... Yeah, it's... There's certain... Certain truths that you have to do, and that's... It has to have a tail, has to have a neck, has to have a spine, has to have some ribs. Has to have limbs, and has to be... Two limbs. Yeah. And has to have a head. Yeah. 
And, but each bone has their own spots where they go. Like yellow bones has to go for the tail or neck. The green bones are the ribs or head or spine. Red bones are limbs. And there's wild bones, which can only touch one color. Yeah, and they can't touch themselves. Yeah, and then there's the blue bones, which just are like... They're called unique. Yeah, because they can be like wings or like a spine on the back. Yeah. All, all in all, I found a lot. I find it a lot of fun. The first time, because we got a little bit goofy and how to meet our cards and stuff, that uh, our din- my dinosaur for sure didn't look anything like a dinosaur. No. Uh, and we were giggling. Uh, this time, as I said, our, our dinosaurs look more dinosaur dinosaur ish. Though I tried to get away, get away with trying to make like a double rib area. Yeah, you had a double <laughs> spine going. Uh, and all in all, it, it it's a lot of fun, and it worked it, well at three. For I think we've played three twice. It's uh, a nice quick game. Like yeah, it was forty five minutes to an hour, and that was including refreshing on the rules. It's it's a nice solid game if you're looking for something to play with family. I would say family weight. Yeah, it's, uh, like, it's I don't un- know if young kids could probably not play it. They probably wouldn't understand what they're doing, but they would love just building the dinosaurs. Yeah, the building the dinosaurs, that tactile aspect of it is really solid. I think it's a good entry level game because I could play. The, think we could play this with our friends and just like ding, do this, ding, do this. Yeah, it, it's it's great. Uh, I'm David. And I'm Jordan. And we'll talk to you next week. Hello, everybody. It's Rob and Anna Marie from the Meeple Dungeon. Hello. And we are back again recording for the What You've Been Playing Wednesdays podcast. And this week we have two games to talk about. What's the first game we're going to talk about, Anna Marie? The first game we're going to talk about is Zaya Legends of a Drift System. And this game is designed by Cody Miller, art by Cody Miller, Steve Cool Hand Tyler, <laughs> and Peter Walken, and published by Far Off Games. Yes, Zaya Legends of the Drift. Um, so this is a three to five player game um, about space uh, pirates, merchants, whatever you want to be. Uh, we don't have this game. Our buddy Kurt does. And um, this is the first time you got to play yeah, it. This, this is f- about the third time I've <laughs> played it or so. And yeah, I'll tell you a little bit about this game. It says uh, Zaya Legends of the Drift is a... Three to five player sandbox style competitive space adventure. Each player starts as a lowly but hopeful captain of a small (laughs) starship. And that's very true. So you do start out this game with just a ship and you can upgrade it with some room for extra cargo or you can add shields to it or some weapons or whatever you might Mm -hmm. want to add at the beginning of the game. You have like $4,000 to spend and so you can add like... $4,000 doesn't get you far. Doesn't get you much, no. (laughs) So you can add a few things and it kind of sets you up for the kind of player you want to be um whether you want yeah to be like just a friendly merchant or you want to be a pirate and go around shooting people and taking their cargo and selling <laughs> it so in this game you are yeah you're this uh captain of the ship and you are going to be going around exploring um you're going to be uh picking up quests along the way and these quests are going to send you to all different parts of the galaxy and you're going to be uh, getting bounties against you if you break through, like break laws in the galaxy. Yeah, they have like lawful planets, yeah. and they have um, 
unlawful planets. Lawful, uh, unlawful, and neutral planets. Yes. Yeah, and they're all designated by a certain different color. And if you, if you, and each one like uh, has like a, um, what's it called? Like a kind of a barrier. So there's only yeah. like one entry point, kind of like a what's very called? awkward a, a Stargate or whatever for um, in in Star Wars. Um, uh, I don't know, it's like a shield. Rogue One, where they have to get to the planet and they have to go through that little portal. Yeah. Like So the rest of the, the planet is covered by a shield and you have to go through just this one little gate to, to enter the, the planet. And that's yeah. similar to here, but you can cross through the but then you become an outlaw here, but then and you're always constantly rolling dice and if and you're rolling for different damage you might yeah you know it's like if if i wanted to squeak through this uh this uh shield around this planet because i want to go in there and i want to pick up whatever's on that planet and i don't want to go all the way around to do it i can roll the die and it's probably like one to eleven and i yeah you got you got like a, a d20 you got a d6 yeah. a d8 you're rolling dice all over the place yeah and it's dictating what's happening to you in various different scenarios. It's really hilarious. Your ship will blow up or you might make it through or you might make it through and you're going to have the cops coming to get you. And Or you hilarious. run out of energy and you're just floating in space yes, on that fumes. You're putting back with <laughs> fumes <laughs> to get <laughs> to a planet <laughs> to, to reset your energy. And yeah, you're basically doing whatever you really want in this game, with depending on how much energy your ship has at any given time, because you're spending energy to do a bunch of different actions. To move and, and do yeah, all sorts and, of things. And, There's um, wormholes. Yeah, and you can blind jump, which is pretty hilarious. So if you want to spend less energy, you can, um, which kind of spends less actions, you can take a chance by blind drawing a tile and and proclaiming that you're going to jump from this spot into the blind tile and then it might be a sun or a black hole or something and you can either blow up or end up shooting across the galaxy to way away from where you wanted to be hilarious stuff like that yeah and if you do get destroyed and there's actually these little comets that go around, go around tracks and you and they move well dep- depending on who's on the on the uh on the tile and um and what the die roll is so if when you move on to a tile with a comet and you have to roll the die and it'll say how far that the comet's going to go and you think oh there's no way i'll roll a six here like I'm, i should yeah. be safe and then it will roll a six and then the comet comes through and clobbers you well, destroys your ship and there's another there's like an asteroid that can come and, and that, like yeah. go through the middle of the board and just like wipe it's everything so hilarious. <laughs> like, and yeah and when you get blown up all your bits and pieces just start floating around in space so other people and can other go people pick can them up come by and pick them up and go and deliver the goods that you were supposed to deliver there's a whole bunch of different colored goods and those goods have to be delivered to different areas and you get Mm -hmm. money for doing so and you you set this game the cool thing with this game is you can set this game to kind of go as long as you want it's a modular board we should say that too yeah you're you're flipping over tiles and exploring adding hex tiles to the board yeah kind of creating the galaxy as you go but the cool thing yeah with with the length of the game they have a score track of about 20 Yes. I think. But you can go to any number you want. I feel like 20 would be like, okay, let's take all day Saturday and play. Well, or a bunch of people that know what they're doing. Maybe. Right? So <laughs> Maybe that's why it took so long. Yeah. But it, like, it's it's a fun one. It's it is fun. It's a really fun, fun experience. Um, it's relatively simple. It's it's a bit of a long setup and a bit of a kind of a... Awkward teach awkward because it's because teach. of the sandboxiness of yeah, the game. Yeah, there's a lot of kind of small things you have to know, but once you understand what's going on, it's relatively easy to, to do, and it's, the, the idea is very simple. Oh, yeah. It's just pick up and deliver, or shoot him and take his stuff and deliver it, or, you know, and you get yeah. random quests and things. You can end up going on space races around the galaxy. You have to drop <laughs> what you're doing and go on this race, and you end up getting money for doing that. And, and it's kind of, uh, yeah, the point system is 
X amount of dollars. So the first person to say twenty thousand dollars wins, or ten thousand, or five thousand, or whatever you want it to be. It's a really fun game. Oh yeah. And we really liked it, and we want to play it again. Um, but that's enough about Zaya. And the other game we are playing is Foundations of Rome yes. from Arcane Wonders. And we're not going to talk about this one. Uh, we're just going to say that it's going to be the feature on our next episode. And you are definitely going to want to hear about this game because it is pretty neat. But, Spoiler um, alert. Yeah. <laughs> no, it's, it's really cool. So we will do a full review of... Foundations of Rome on the next episode of the Meeple Dungeon Podcast, which is episode 39, I believe. Yes. So, yeah, watch out for that. And, uh, yeah, we're going to run, so we will see you next week. Cheers. See ya. Hello, and welcome to the Tabletop Bellhop segment of What You've Been Playing Wednesday. I am Mo Tuzano, the Tabletop Bellhop, your cardboard concierge, answering your gaming and game night questions and working with you to make your game nights better. Now, I've got two games to talk about tonight, Scythe and Pret-a-Porter. Let's start with Scythe. This time, we tried the game with four players, with myself, Deanna, her mom, Brenda, and our oldest daughter, Gwen. Now, this was the first play for Gwen and Brenda, third for Deanna, and my fifth. And we're still all figuring things out. I can't remember the last game I played with this many different options that ends up being all about how everything interacts. Or maybe I can. I think Scythe reminds me most of Terra Mystica. Now that game gives you 11 different actions you can take on your turn. And while each of them is pretty simple and easy to activate, easy to do and follow through, it's all about how they combine and interact that makes Terra Mystica such a pain to learn. Now we're finding the same thing with Scythe. Every game, we notice something new. Some new interaction or some new combo, some new reason to take a specific action, etc. Now, I think I mentioned this before, but just in case, my first impression of Scythe was not good. And I would have given up on the game if it weren't for tabletop bellhop fans encouraging me to give it another go. And at this point, I do have to thank them. There's a lot more to like in this game than I saw in my first couple of very cutthroat plays. Now, I'm still looking forward to at least a couple more games aside before I do up a formal review. Now, the 15th of this month, I should be able to get to try it five players, as Sean's going to be in town and at my game table. And I gotta say, I always love it when he can actually get to play a game we're reviewing physically, though he could play the digital version online, but I like it when he gets to touch it as well. Now, next up comes a pretty brutal learning game of Pret-a-Porter. Deanna gave me the third edition of this economic game about the fashion industry for my birthday, and we finally got it to the table for the first time two nights ago. And it turned out to be a bit of a mixed bag. Now, first off, we were both really impressed by how quick we could punch it and get it set up and ready to play and buy the plastic box insert, which even included a separate resource tray to organize things out on the table. I love it when publishers do that. Next, the rules seemed pretty clear, and concise, though you could tell the meat of the game was going to be on the cards. Well, then we started playing and interacting with these cards, which quickly turned into debating exactly what card after card meant and when you can play it and what happened in what orders. Now, we went online, as usual, going on BoardGameGeek, and I got to say, Googling Pret-a-Porte anything, it's really hard to find anything about the game and not the fashion industry. Uh, eventually, I, we never found an FAQ, but we didn't end up in the Board Game Geek rules forums and saw a ton of questions. 
And we were having difficulty finding exactly what we were looking for still. And then eventually I noticed in multiple threads on BoardGameKey, people kept linking to what's called the Pret-a-Porter Almanac. Now, this is an excellent three-page PDF that summarizes all of the cards in the game, as well as clarifying other parts of the rulebook. And I've got to say, why did I have to go online and find this? Why was this not included in the box for this game? The game is almost unplayable without it. Dan and I wasted like an hour trying to find answers that were right there on this resource, and I'm just baffled. I realize Portal Games has a reputation for bad rulebooks, but it's disappointing to experience it firsthand. Now, once we actually figured out how things were supposed to work, and we dug into it, the game played pretty smoothly. Actually, it reminds me quite a bit of Bastille from Queen Games, which is something we reviewed last year, or was it the year before? Anyway, it was a little while ago, or a while ago. Uh, this is a game where you're placing workers on one of nine action spots, with the player placing first getting dibs on the stuff at each spot. Now you're doing this, take these actions to build a fashion empire. Now, I don't want to get into full details here, it's only my first time playing, and it's just this isn't really the podcast for it. But I will say this is a heavy economic game that has the feature or problem, depending on what you think of heavy economic games, of being able to make early mistakes that'll basically cost you the game. Stuff you won't be able to recover from. This is what happened in this learning game. Deanna totally, completely, absolutely crushed me. I sat at 18 points for most of the game while she was scoring in the hundreds. Our final scores were 147 to me and 400 to Deanna. And I gotta say, being that far behind for so long without seeing any way to catch up wasn't fun. Now, what we probably should have did is stop once it seemed inevitable that she would win and I couldn't catch up. But this was our first play of the game, and I wanted to see all aspects of the game, including the last round and the final scoring, so we fought through. Now, our scores were so divergent, and Deanna's strategy combo so powerful, that I actually spent part of yesterday online trying to figure out if we played extreme. Since, as you know, one of the bellhop's laws is your first play of any game will be extreme. You will mess something up. Sure enough, we did. We got one rule completely wrong, but it ends up it was a rule mistake that hindered her. And actually, if we played properly, she would have done even better. So that wasn't it. Now, looking back on the game, while I can't call it fun, it didn't completely quash my desire to play again. Though I think next time I'd like to try with more than two players. Maybe this is a two-player issue. I also see some of what I did wrong and what Deanna did right, and I think I'm more prepared to counter that or play better in a future game. Which honestly, if you're thinking about a game two days later and trying to come up with new strategies, that is a good sign for a good game. Overall, this was just a first play, right? As a first play, it was a learning game. Neither of us had played before, so no final thoughts, except that if you do pick up Pret-a-Porter, go online, find the almanac, get the almanac, and throw it in your box. And that's it for my week in gaming. Now, a couple things before I go. First off, you should join us tonight at 9 Eastern at twitch.tv slash tabletopbellhop, where we're going to record the next episode of the Tabletop Bellhop Gaming Podcast, Gaming on the Cheap, Low-Cost and No-Cost Games. Now, if you can't make it, be sure to check out our YouTube channel or find the podcast on your podcatcher of choice. Second, next week is Amazon Prime Day, and as an Amazon affiliate, it's going to be super busy, so we won't be recording a new episode on the 13th, and similarly, I probably won't be able to find time to do a What You've Been Playing episode either. So you probably won't hear from me next week. For the Tabletop Bellhop Gaming Podcast, I am Mo Tuzano. Good day and game on.
Hello, my name is Alex. I write board game reviews over at MeepleandMoose.com and I'm here to talk about the games I played this week for What You've Been Playing Wednesday. This week was Canada Day Long Weekend, the perfect opportunity to gather with your friends, play games and have a great time. I happened to get pretty sick this week with a sinus infection, so all my plans got tossed out the window. But even with getting sick, I still managed to get two board games played. The first game was Super Motherload by Gavin Brown and Matt Tolman. Super Motherload is a light deck builder about digging into Mars and collecting va valuable minerals to purchase better pilots, all in a race to accrue the most points. Super Motherload does its very best to emulate the experience of a side-scrolling, or in this case, vertical-scrolling video game. The first two double-sided Mars boards are placed on the board and each player gets a unique starter deck, each one slightly varying from the other. Each player starts with a 7 card base deck plus 16 more cards laid in groups of 4 in front of them forming a personal shop. As the game progresses, players may purchase cards from the shop to add to their deck. The last person who dug a hole gets to take the first turn and then the game is underway. An average turn consists of two actions. You may draw two cards, play cards of the same color for their drills, or cause an explosion by playing a bomb token and a red card. You may perform the same action twice in a single turn. Various obstacles will prevent you from beelining yourself to the core of the planet. For instance, rocks and metal plates require you to use different tools to progress. Metal plates can only be dug through using drills of the matching color, and rocks must be bombed out. You do still get the minerals if you bomb through them though, because on Mars there are special bombs that only destroy worthless rocks, leaving valuable stones untouched for your capitalist needs. One of the best features of Super Mudload is that you can always dig starting from any of the tunnel pieces that have already been placed on the board. As you go farther down into Mars, the quality and quantity of goods begins to increase. This causes every player to take as much as they can on their turn while trying not to give the next player immediate access to whatever treasures lie beyond their current reach. I love this trade-off, biding your time and building up your hand while waiting for someone to make a move that allows you to strike out in a, to a particularly rich ore vein. Your tunnel may then be used by someone else to reach even further and gather more resources. This cycle is incredibly satisfying and is what keeps me bringing this game back to the table for more. The majority of victory points will come from buying increasingly expensive pilot cards in your personal shop, which consists of four different colors. Each color has pilots who are trained for different specialties. As you purchase pilot cards, the following card in that stack is more expensive, but is worth an increasing number of victory points. The challenge is to balance buying pilots of different specialties while accruing the most victory points. To make matters even more interesting, Super Motherload also has major and minor achievements that may influence how you play each turn. The major achievements are earned by fulfilling the recipe of having purchased the required number and type of cards from your personal shop. Only the first player who satisfies the requirement of each of these achievements can claim it, and once all the major achievements have been claimed, they're gone from the game. The minor achievements are more varied. They task players to fulfill specific and certain objectives, such as having four platinum resources on any of their pilot stacks, or by bombing twice in one turn, or by drilling five spaces in a single turn, and so on and so forth. Uh, these offer a small amount of victory points, but those can build up very quickly. Sleep from Motherload offers a unique spin on the deck building genre. By not requiring players to discard unused cards and draw a whole new hand each turn, invokes a feeling of momentum. You can build up steam, gathering a handful of cards, then blast off, reaching a high value gem that everyone thought was out of reach. If you have a big turn, spend all your cards digging massive new tunnels, you'll find your next turn lighter as you need to recuperate from that aggressive activity. I feel it invokes the feeling of someone who rushed out too far too fast and broke the little digging machine. 
The players who take their time making slower, consistent moves never hit a big payday, but are also never left out in the cold. While most deck building games reward players who focus their decks to a specific strategy, such as Hardback or Star Realms, building a slim, uber-functional deck is not the core of the game here. The crux of Super Motherload revolves around that spatial element of burrowing for resources on the board, seeing the best time to lay down 4 drills to just barely get that extra valuable gem, and racing for the low-hanging fruit of the easy-to-achieve objectives. The double-sided board offers a nice variety on the obstacles, and if you're desperate for more, fans have posted some of their own creations on BoardGameGeek. I do wish Super Motherload had an expansion. More map tiles, more asymmetric player decks, different minerals, and so on. Nothing that changes the game drastically. As the core gameplay of Super Motherload is really fantastic, I just want more of it. And I think that's probably the highest praise I could give a game. I simply crave more of it. Honestly, owning Super Motherload makes you a bit of a missionary. It's the kind of game that you want to introduce to everyone, especially those who love deck builders, as it has deck building elements that you enjoy from other games, but a very satisfying board element to go along with it. The other game I played this week is Kings of Israel by designer Lance Hill and published by Fun Hill Games in 2014. Now, there's a knee-jerk reaction that happens within me every time someone mentions that a piece of media is Christian. Memories of a kitschy, proselytizing messages layered upon subpar productions and fictionalized idyllic stories that lean too heavily into prosperity for the good guys and a lack of real danger or consequences is generally what comes to mind. Some people have complex and traumatic experiences when it comes to church or religion, and will often refuse to engage with that media because no one likes to be bombarded with propaganda, especially if they've already rejected that message a dozen times. Now, I am of the Christian faith. I generally reject the media that caters to my religion. It always feels lacking, more of trying to push an agenda or a message, rather than focusing on a good story for the sake of art. But when the opportunity arose to get my hands on a couple Christian-themed board games, my curiosity was piqued. Kings of Israel is a cooperative game set in the northern kingdom of Israel during the reign of its kings up until Israel's destruction by Assyria. Players represent a line of prophets that are trying to stem the influx of sin and dismantle the golden idols, while also trying to build enough altars to win the game. A round of kings has four phases. The king's godliness phase will either bestow a blessing onto the players, or a punishment, depending on if the current sitting king is good or evil. After dealing with the event for that round, the sin increases phase has players revealing location cards and distributing black sin cubes. Uh, should a location ever receive a third sin cube, it also erects a golden idol. If players ever need to put out a sin cube or an idol, but they're not in the supply, they lose the game. After sin has been distributed, the prophet's work phase begins. Each player gets four actions. You can move, remove sinner idols, draw resource cards, build an altar, make a sacrifice at an altar, or give resources to another player, assuming you're in the same location. Once all players have taken a turn, the end of round phase has the starting player pass clockwise, and the timeline token moves onto the next king in chronological order. Should the timeline token hit the bottom of the track, Assyria invades and destroys Israel, resulting in a loss for the prophets. The only way players can win is if they manage to erect altars, 7 in a 2 player game, 8 in a 3 player game, and 9 in a 4 player game. Kings of Israel is Biblical Pandemic, and that's how I described it when I invited people over to come play. The similarities are obvious. There's plague cubes spreading across the map, although Kings of Israel only features one color of cubes, and players get 4 actions on their turn where they're trying to move and clear cubes from the board. What separates Kings of Israel from Pandemic is the resource cards and how players win. Instead of drawing two cards at the end of your turn like you do in Pandemic, Kings of Israel has you spending your actions to draw cards. 
Players need to decide if they want to draw cards to the resources they need or focus their time in clearing sin cubes and dismantling the idols. The former is the path to victory, but ignoring the latter will result in a loss to the prophets. Kings of Israel is fast to get started and quick to play. All the decks get shuffled and are just ready to roll. There's no need to separate out cards to ensure an even distribution. Uh, this means it's both quick and random. In this game, I ended up drawing a card that made me reshuffle the discard and put it back on the top of the deck with only four location cards in that discard pile, putting each of those locations in danger of getting an idol almost immediately. Beyond the setup for the decks, every round is quick too. You draw and deal with the blessing or punishment, draw location cards for, to spread sin, and then each player does four actions. After all players have taken a turn, the first player is passed to the left and then you just do it all again. As with most cooperative games, if you have players who prefer to discuss every possible option, the game can drag on too long. The rulebook says for an easy mode, players can play with their cards on the table, but there's no restriction on communication on what's in your hand, so I'm hard pressed to figure out why you wouldn't just play with an open hands anyways. You could just ask if anyone got gold each round? Playing with the cards face up on the table just removes a small memory aspect from the game in my eyes. The goal of the game is to build altars. To build an altar you need to pay a gold, a wood, and a stone card from your hand. There are only 6 of each of these cards in the resource deck, meaning you'll need to get through the entire resource deck at least once in order to win the game. This leads players to sometimes take their entire turn to just draw cards, milling the deck, trying to run that deck out so that you can reshuffle and get those resources that you need from the discard pile into your hands. This is doubly painful when the punishment cards destroy built altars or force you to discard one of the necessary resources from your hand. I don't particularly like it when the boring play is a smart play. Sure, you can distract yourself to clear some cubes, but that may cause a problem next round, but if you don't mill that deck, you can't build all the altars and you'll lose anyways. Thankfully, that's not often the case and may only come up as you get down to the final handful of turns. Now is where I come back to the theme. I actually really appreciate that Kings of Israel doesn't proselytize. At no point does it beat you over the head with scripture or force the virtues of the church down your throat. The flavor text on every card does contain a relevant verse from the Bible, but it's very small and it only serves to enhance the theme. I also enjoy that the game doesn't turn God into a vending machine, doling out blessings and prosperity at every turn. Instead, it shows both sides, his blessings and his wrath. The prophets are not universally loved and granted unrealistic divine protection, but they're persecuted. To me, this more accurately reflects my experience with the Bible having read it cover to cover a few times. There's a lot of violence and wrath in that book that seems to be skipped over during Sunday morning sermons and in most Christian media. It's plain to me that designer Lance Hill has done his homework and handled the theme very respectfully. As I said before, Kings of Israel is biblical pandemic. That phrase alone should tell you enough if you should seek it out or not. I'm looking forward to the next time I have my friends of faith over as I have no doubt that this game will be a hit with them. I think I would have been even more enthusiastic had I played this back in 2014 before the other pandemic spinoff games such as Fall of Rome and Rising Tide. Kings of Israel is quick and easy to play and makes a great game to play with any collection of people whether it be you and your kids or another group. And that's all I played this week. If you want to read more of my board game reviews, you can find them over at meeplenymoose.com or follow me on Twitter at MooseMeeple. Have a happy Wednesday. Hey there, Norm here from the Cardboard Conjecture Podcast and Bridge City Board Gamers here in Saskatoon. And uh, speaking of Bridge City Board Gamers here in Saskatoon, let's find out 
from the Facebook page what the community has been playing. And uh, starting us off is Eli. Uh, he says, I did manage a few games of Sprawlopolis. And uh, I've heard good things about that. If I'm thinking correctly, Sprawlopolis, I can't even say it properly, um, but Sprawlopolis is a small card-driven kind of uh, uh, um, uh, deck tableau building game kind of thing. So yeah, cool. Very cool. Uh, let's, uh, that's the only thing he's got that he's playing. Let's move on with hands. Uh, I know somewhere that there could be, you know, a, a, a game that's been going on for a while. Uh, on tour, cool. Trails of Tucana, Azul Vanilla, Azul Queen's Garden, Gone Sean Clever, Dice Miner, Mandala, Tussimussi, Ark Nova, and Gollum. Wow. Wow. Very cool lineup. Very cool indeed. Um, uh, there's, uh, I, you know, the Azul stuff I haven't played. Uh, I've only played the base game, and which is awesome. Nothing wrong with that. And I can see those people who really are really into that game want to kind of push the walls, you know, you know, expand it a little bit and, and explore that, uh, that very cool abstract uh, system. So, yeah. And Gonshan Clever, uh, such a fun roll and write cascading kind of game where, uh, you know, that same engine, if you want to put a theme on it, you can go and, and get Fleet the Dice game or Three Sisters because that's kind of, you know, that idea of this cascading triggering system. So, Nice. Uh, Tassimasi, very cool. Uh, uh, um, uh, from the same designer as uh, Wingspan. And Arc Nova. I've got Arc Nova on the table. I've been playing that solo. And uh, yeah, I'm digging it. I'm digging it a, a, a quite a bit. But I mean, still, I've still explore, still trying to finish a game without having any, you know, rule errors. So, uh, but. I'm, I'm repeat playing, so that tells me the first thing. So right on. Garth had a chance to game with my uh, two boys, uh, Dice Hollow Games in Warman for the first time. Neat place. Introduced them to Architects of the West Kingdom. Yeah, that's a good game. We all played Minecraft Biomes and finished it off with a quick game of Dominion. Either this week... Got, uh, earlier this week, sorry, got to play Ruins of Arnak after a long break. What a beautiful game and innovation. Also finished Space Base with Shy Pluto expansion. Lots of fun. Garth, that is a huge uh, uh, lineup schedule. Um, bravo. You must have had an assistant keep to keep your <laughs> schedule going. Uh, yeah, Architects, so much fun. Uh, the Miko, I love his art. Uh, Runes of Arnak, that's awesome game. Um, yeah, I'm just quickly like looking through the list here, and uh, wow, I'm I'm quite impressed here. Innovation, uh, Carl Chudik, Th that card game innovation is insane fun. Uh, talk about it's like I've often I've often called that game a knife fight in a phone booth because holy moly, there's some. There's some take that that can just devastate people for a while. And then all of a sudden you, you, you latch onto a card that swings the, the OP in your direction. And then it's, it's like, oh, look, I got two knives, right? Um, yeah, what a fun game. Cool. 
Jason, we played Ticket to Ride in the airport on Thursday. That was the first game we played since May. And he's got like a big, big tear. But, you know, it's good. It's awesome. Ticket to Ride is so much fun. Uh, Brian, Burn Cycle and Role Player Adventures. Oh, I so much want to try that game. Burn Cycle, I've heard a lot of things about it. Uh, sorry, I've seen a lot of people talking about it. I haven't really done any homework in regards to, you know, what what's actually going on there. Uh, Ash, Return to Dark Tower. Some old school nostalgia. Uh, yeah, I've got the beeps and blips going on in my head now just from my sense memory from being a kid. Uh, I've, yeah, I've, I've not heard anybody uh, talk about this. And uh, so I'm, yeah, I'm going to let us know how it went. How about that? Scott took a break from Marvel Champions to try Burn Cycle via Tabletop Simulator. Continued our D&D campaign using Above VTT and D&D Beyond, which is always fun. Uh, played Azul with Paul Grogan on my birthday via Tabletop Simulator. All oh, right on. Right on. Well, good on you. That must have been such a fun game. Completed an async play of Seven Wonders Architects on BGA. That is some engaged synchronous and asynchronous play. Well done, Scott. Well done. Lane. Lane's always got a list. Yay, there we go. I clicked. It had so much of a list, there was a see more button on there. And not, I mean, I don't mean see more like, you know, little shop of horrors. See, now you're thinking of that in your head, aren't you? Um, uh, so, well, gamers, look at this list, he says. Uno, dos, uno, flip, uno, all wild. There's a theme going on here. Skip Bo, who stole the cookie? Ba That's a game, not a statement. Uh, Bacon Wars, Gloomhaven, for love of all things cardboards, please tell me where there are no more Unos. I think that was a subconscious uh, um, uh, declarative there. <laughs> uh, wow, yeah, that's... Uh, or you could just say no to your kids. I mean, yeah, the, I could. Yeah, listen, listen to me. I'm the biggest. I'm the biggest softy with my children. <laughs> uh, well, you know what? Create an Uno game with a theme that works for you. How about that? Uh, moving on, Jason. Uh, Trials of Tucana, Paper Tales, Wonderland's War. I've seen a lot of people playing that one. Uh, vacation starts today, so hopefully the list will get longer by next Wednesday. Nice, nice. Uh, uh, basically, those are games that you've listed that I have no context whatsoever. Like I said, Wonderland Wars, I've seen a lot of people posting on Twitter uh, that they've been playing that one. So, yeah, right on. Matt, can't stop. <laughs> That's the push your luck that just gets my adrenaline going. Uh, Everdell, Poker, Project L. Uh, yeah, well, I think in poker, maybe Texas Hold'em. Right, I mean that's the that's been the uh, the standard poker game that everybody has been playing. Uh, Everdell, I have never played Everdell, so um, I, I and again it's uh, it's present. I see it a lot. Never played it, so there you go. Um, okay, let's see. So we have uh, Tim Warhammer Underworlds with Amanda, nice, um, uh, Andean Abyss. I hope I said that right with Brent. And, uh, oh, yeah, I play games with Brent. I miss Brent. Um, cool. That, uh, that, I'm looking at the, uh, I'm looking at the board on the, uh, Andean, Andean Abyss. I, I'm, I'm mispronunciating it. 
Um, uh, it looks very much like a uh, kind of strategy influence, maybe resources. I don't know. I'm, I'm just kind of guessing off the top of my head here. Uh, I'm going to have to look that one up. I'm curious. Uh, okay, Jeff, uh, Tidal Blades and New York Zoo this week. I love New York Zoo. It's patchwork with a, with a zoo on it. <laughs> uh, yeah, if you, like, if you like patchwork, then you'll absolutely... Basically, well, not basically. In a sense, uh, it's basically take... <laughs> I said basically again. Take patchwork and instead of the button economy, create a species propagation. And there you go. And then, and then you know, dial that in with a with a point uh, evaluation system kind of thing. So right on, uh, Theo. Too many bones and D and D dice rolling extravaganza. Uh, I I don't know about that, but it's got D and D in the front, so I am interested. Cool. Well, that wraps up what the community's been playing. Nice. Well. What you been playing lately, Norm? Well, I've been playing Hansa Teutonica, which is my favorite uh, network and route building game. Uh, it is <laughs> it is by far the ugliest board game cover uh, that is probably. I mean, it's it's gonna it's on it's award winning. It's award. It's on the same par as the old Great Western Trail. <laughs> Um, but what it does show you, I mean, everything in the picture is in the game system. So it's not like they're you know, not uh, uh, giving you good uh, clues in the art as to what to expect. But it is Euro plane colors of, of uh, khaki and taupe and browns and <laughs> yeah, brownie greens. Not my yeah. It's it's your standard Euro color, and it is all. I mean, it's card. It's cubes. That's all it is. Is a cardboard tableau and cubes. And as far as, I mean, there's not much theme going on. Uh, and I, what whatever the theme is, I mean, it's it's the Teutonic period, right? And it's it's the idea of of trade routes and that connectivity of. Uh, ec economic prosperity of the time and uh, every little village had a uh, an office right and and again you know the larger the expanse or the web of the of the business the more prosperous and more profitable was that said business in the time and uh, he, as far as the game goes there's uh, five things that you can there's five actions that you can do and it's one of these games where uh, you get to unlock actions and increase. So if you love Scythe about unlocking that stuff and getting you know bigger actions, you will just gush over this game. Um, don't forget, though, that this game is, at its core, a route-building and network-building game. So if you like those games, uh, this, is, this is absolute like symphonic beauty when it comes to that mechanical nature of game uh and uh, i mean if you don't like it great my subjective opinion is i really like this game um now i i love me my euros you know don't get me wrong i love the D, &D but if it's time to just brain out and play a good just like a quintessential euro yeah give me some hands at teutonica but 
uh, flipping the gears here, talking about the old, the old classic uh, Euro. We're going to jump into probably like uh, the newest game that I've played lately, and that's Ark Nova. Well, not newest. Uh, it's back in the shelves new for me. Um, and up north here, it could be the first time we see it. You know, you never know, eh? Uh, so yeah, this is uh, Arc Nova, designed by Matthias Wig and published by uh, Firulon Spiel and brought into North America by Capstone. Again, Capstone. Bravo, bravo. And uh, basically, this one, you're... You're you're a I wouldn't even say zoo. You're a, like one of these larger scope, um, you know, uh, um, area of I don't even want to say safari, but it's it's a mo like yeah. It says design a modern zoo to run a successful park to support conservation projects. Yeah, you're the best thing about this is what what Wingspan did for this idea of being able to learn a little bit through you know the game itself and the art and the compelling nature uh, of of the game system this does the same thing for you know the rest of the animal kingdom and uh, also talking about or, or act, at least priming people's brains in the idea of conservancy right i mean stewardship the the idea that that we need to uh uh, pay a little more attention to what's going on, and uh, yeah, I'm I'm liking it now. Uh, some people are saying that you know this there's too much randomness in this game. Any time that you have a huge stack of cards with a deck-driven game system, yeah, yeah, you're gonna have some randomness. But the game, like terraforming Mars, same thing here. You have to tactically maneuver through the variables that are presented to you and if the variables presented to you as in the cards and the market and so on and so forth are not satisfactory there are ways to push the cards through and find something or you need to like don't get locked into you know this is what i want and this is what i'm going for and i'm going to wait for the card that's not a very you know efficient way to play a game like this <laughs> But if this is a game that you like to uh, see what's in front of you and to evaluate the synergy um, with, like I said, with those variables present, uh, yeah, if you can be put it this way, if you can beautiful mind connect the dots to the most efficient way to, to run this uh, modern zoo, uh, you are just going to have that that itch in your brain scratched uh, perfectly because I, that's and again I'm working my way there. I think right now the way I learn games is uh, I'm going to play it until I can have a play that is rules clean, and then I'll play it again to uh, now look at the feel, the experience because. Uh, I, I don't want to, um, I, I try not to, uh, you, you know, uh, decide about a game that I haven't even played properly, right? <laughs> yeah, I didn't like this car. It, it, it over-revved. 
did you take it out of first? No, no, I just left it in first, right? I mean, that's not a way to do a car review. <laughs> so yeah, I'm, I want to run through the gears on this game before I get a good uh, good idea if it's uh, if it's one that I'm gonna review or you know put it right on the top shelf. So yeah, that's Arc Nova. And Hansa Teutonica. Hansa Teutonica is like right on the top shelf. It's right in the middle. It, it Yes, it's basically represents the council of cardboard for my shelf. <laughs> there you go. Well, uh, we're at that time where I always like to say thank you so much for taking the time listening to what's being said about board games lately. And thank you so much to those people saying those things about board games and uh, the content creators that always are so very generous with their time and uh, collaborate with this special weekly episode. Thank you so much. And uh, that being said, keep your stick on the ace and take care out there, eh? (laughs) 